to the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. For more on events, news, and research, visit us at shorensteincenter.org. Welcome. Glad to see you all here. I'm Alex Jones. I'm director of the Shorenstein Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. And it is my great pleasure to uh, welcome David Carr to the Kennedy School and the Shorenstein Center. Um, I'm told to tell you that the hashtag is David Carr, right, for, for today. That's always it's, the hashtag <laughs> in my world. Uh, I'm a, a very sincere and great admirer of David Carr. Uh, he has been genuinely an inspiration to a lot of journalists, not just because of the way he does his work uh, covering the media, but because of the way he has stood up as an advocate for a certain kind of journalism that is rooted in reporting and doing the hard work of, uh, of journalism as well as being uh, an excellent and, and prolific writer. Uh, his weekly column in the New York Times is uh, required reading for anyone who is interested in media issues. I had the distinct honor of appearing in uh, a movie starring David Carr. <laughs> Not a lot of but I, uh, I was very particularly uh, pleased to be in that movie because one of the moments in it illuminated one of my absolute favorite holy shit moments of David Carr's career, which is when I picked up the New York Times on the, and on the front page was an article that he had written about the Tribune Company uh, under Sam Zell being turned into a kind of a frat house. It was a article that just knocked me on my keister and I think led to how many resignations? I don't know, a bunch. All the important bad guys are out of work, so that's all But the movie includes him doing interviewing with the, with the uh, people at Tribune Company that uh, preceded that, uh, that article. And it was quite, a, quite a, a moment journalistically to watch David Carr have a conversation with someone uh, about a subject that they knew was going to be absolutely devastating to them. And it was done without malice, and it was done without passion. It was done simply clinically, with vast amounts of factual information at hand, and with consummate professionalism. That's the thing I thought was extraordinary about it. It was not done vindictively or nastily, it was simply done even though these guys were really jerks. Uh, it was done uh, as a real professional. And it uh, is something that David Carr brings to all his work. Many of you probably are aware of the articles that he has written in the wake of Philip Seymour Hoffman's uh, death. Um, that's not really our topic for this morning. But it is typical, again, that he would have written something, not actually for the New York Times, but which had the same kind of um, empathy. There's not a, I don't, I think one of the things about David Carr's background, and I'm sure you're all familiar with, with it, is that it's given him a kind of um, sense of the common humanity and uh, his, his, his sense of moral indignation is there, but it is not, I think, aimed at something that could be called human frailty quite the vigor that is applied by some other people, and I like that about him as well. It's my great pleasure, David, to have you here. Thank you very much, Alex. Is this thing working? Can you hear me? Um, the, uh, um, the, the Tribune story, I'm glad you mentioned that because that's actually the last uh, uh, serious piece of work I did several years ago, so it's glad it's still living. Um, I think in that interview I told the guy, you better put the nut cup on, which, <laughs> which, he was just giving him good advice. <laughs> well, because they were, the thing was, is they, they kept thinking the story was not coming, and 
I, I had to tell them, look, it's, it's, it's going to happen. It's really, they thought somehow that I would see the error of their way, of my ways and that. And it, they didn't engage until uh, the very end. And I had been on it for three and a half months. I was uh, sort of overwhelmed. I went into the bankruptcy file, which at the time had 5,600 uh, uh, documents. And I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit math impaired, so it was uh, like, I had to master that stuff, and I finally, um, I ended up, there was this kid that had kind of uh, stalked me, uh, like at book readings, and finally I just said, are you like some kind of journalism nerd or groupie, or what is, what is your deal? Why do you keep popping up like Jason in a hockey mask? And she said, yeah, I'm really into journalism. And at the time, people at the paper were preoccupied, and this person, Sydney Embers, helped me uh, um, piece together this massive, massive story. And I worked with her remotely by phone. And I could remember, uh, I, didn't, I didn't meet her until the, the day the story was going to go. And you know, you get to be a certain age, you can't tell how old anybody is. And she walked up to me, and Sydney is about this big. <laughs> And she looked 12 years old, and I thought, oh my god, I'm, I'm about to publish the most important story I've done in years, and I worked with a 12-year-old to do it. <laughs> um, I'm happy to say that Sydney now works at the New York Times. Uh, she was working for BlackRock Financial, and, and we've lured her back from the dark side to journalism. She's working for Dealbook at the New York Times. Um, and. I'd like to think that she's coming into the business at a really good time. You mentioned uh, you mentioned the thing I did on Philip Seymour Hoffman at 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 our paper. That's a very important moment when uh, uh, when a person who's put a dent in the culture dies, and in this instance, dies. Prematurely and tragically, that's a very big deal. So we had um, the very important obit by Bruce Weber. We had A.O. Scott, our film critic, doing an assessment of his career, uh, what we call an appreciation. Then Patrick Healy and some of his colleagues did uh, a look into what, what projects were left undone. And although I helped out around the edges with uh, um, was sort of sourcing and stuff because I had covered Mr. Hoffman and knew him a little bit. There really wasn't any, my presence was not really required on the story. And I was sitting last Tuesday, I thought I still, I still want to say something about him. I still, because I thought some of the broader coverage was missing uh, the, the points in both his career and his recovery. And so I sat down with a cup of coffee at my kitchen table and I opened up Medium. And Medium is this, it's, it's both sort of a platform and a content management system that Evan Williams of uh, Twitter is working with. And it's a, it's a very dreamy, lovely way to, it's, it's like a typewriter for the internet. It's a very easy, simple way of getting copy up on the web. And I wrote it just because I wanted to, because why does anybody write anything? And, <clears throat> you know, I wanted my friends to see it, and so I sent it to them. And I wanted some of his friends to see it, so I sent it to them. And I sort of thought that was the end of it. And I think 90,000 people ended up reading that. And you could say, well, that, I mean, I, I, I could say to myself, well, lesson there is I'm great. <laughs> I don't really think so. I mean, I think I wrote, what I wrote was fine and good and, but, the platform in this instance really wasn't 
medium. Medium doesn't have a lot of native traffic, or maybe it does, but it, not, not that I know of. Uh, it was my first time using it. And so maybe it was Twitter, because I have a lot of followers on Twitter, and I did tweet it out, but I don't think that really says... I think in this instance, the platform was sort of this public hunger for information about him. And it's a reminder that if you sort of reach up and grab a moment that a lot of things can happen and that we're in an era where it's, it's not really push, it's pull. And if people want it, they'll grab it and <clears throat> pull it back. And what was remarkable to me is just the sort of friction-free, oh, I think I'll use this picture, I started with a really weird old anecdote of him wrestling with Rain Wilson at the Independent Spirit Awards, and it's the kind of thing that never would have fit in a daily paper. It's like, why are you talking about him wrestling? I talked about the crack of his butt showing and all this, this kind of stuff that probably Mother Times wouldn't have liked very much. And, and uh, even my wife said, well, I... You know, there's important stuff about recovery. It took you a while to wind your way into it. And she's a tough reader. And, uh, and I said, you know what? I did it like I wanted to do it. That's how I did it. I did it. I told it the way I wanted to tell it. And, um, and people ended up responding to it. But I, I just think it's... I'm going to be teaching at, at Boston University uh, um, beginning next fall, and I think we're going to spend some time on medium and other similar, I don't even know what to call them, whether they're platforms or publishers. Jonathan Glick, who runs a company called Sulia, did a, a story for Recode, which is... There's going to be a lot of this, but it's hard to even keep track of what's going on now. But Kara Swisher and Walter Mossberg, two very talented journalists at the Wall Street Journal, ended up forming All Things D. And then um, uh, uh, about a month ago, two months ago, uh, Dow Jones and they spread, split and they sort of calved off this site. And it's now called Recode, and they made an agreement with, with NBC. And it just tells you a little bit about sort of the world we're living in, where a couple of brand-name journalists can sort of shop for new owners or new partners and uh, take an interest themselves. But on that site, um, Jonathan Glick wrote something about Medium and Gawker and how People go there to read things, but they also go there to make things. Gawker has a new system called Kinja, where you can type into and it can get... And it's sort of a pro-am environment. Medium pays for writers, but they also host other content. And it's sort of the wisdom, if that's what it is, of the crowds voting up what they want and, and, and like. And I think this sort of... Absence of friction is really important. The ability to go out toward an audience, which is the original promise of the web, right? That we all, that the oak trees would fall and that a thousand flowers would bloom. I think there's a lot of blooming going on right now. We've seen a huge in-migration of capital and talent into the digital space. I mean, if you think about it, um, I, I, like somebody not that long ago uh, um, dropped me a note and, 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 and said, I want you to talk about the future of journalism. And I said, well, if you'd told me a year ago that Jeff Bezos was going to buy the Washington Post, I would have told you you were crazy. And if you'd told me that Pierre Omidyar uh, of eBay was going to put 250 million bucks behind Glenn Greenwald and a couple of buddies. I would have said, you're out of your mind. And then if you would have told me that Bill Keller, who is, you know, the, the printiest guy I can think of, <laughs> um, uh, was going <clears> to 
<coughs> leave um, the house of many doors and go uh, uh, out to do a, uh, a digital site focused on criminal justice, I would have just said you're crazy. So I don't, I don't tend to talk about the future much because the I think the president is moving quickly enough and uh, and in unexpected ways enough that just trying to get your hands around that is plenty enough. Um, the I mean, think about in the New Yorker there was a really good story this week about Jeff Bezos and in it Henry Blodgett who. Um, runs Business Insider is going down to the Washington Post and giving them lectures about how to do news on the web. So you have this guy who's barred from trading who got into journalism and uh, uh, developed a certain way of doing things, uh, uh, giving tutorials to the once great. Washington Post, and it's just like, wow, we are living in a pretty different world. There's no, there was this great sort of, um, beginning in 2006, 2007, um, the newspaper industry, which is where we stored a lot of the horsepower of, uh, American journalism went off a cliff, and they're about half again, as big as they were by now. And it's like, well, that's all gone. What, what? But now we're seeing stuff come in that is, uh, um, whether it's uh, Evan Smith and the Texas Tribune um, in uh, in Texas. I mean, I'm not sure we'd all know who Wendy Davis was unless they. They set up like a feed, and um, uh, you think of more obscure, but just as important sort of experiments like like um, OpenGov, which is taking all the. If you've ever done any city hall reporting, God bless you. Uh, 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 you know that you end up with with you know. Uh, 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 some guy in the basement who's munching a bag of Doritos sitting on top of a bunch of moldy old files. And it's just like, what I want is behind you somewhere. <laughs> and I'm not sure I want to do what I got to do to get it. Um, a lot of governments are making deals. I, I think 60 municipalities, counties, towns are making deals with OpenGov to transform those moldy old paper files or PDFs, which are just as useless because you can't, you can't make the data move or dance, making deals. Um, you, again and again, if you want to look at sort of, like if you're looking at the, the, the news or informational environment as a venture capitalist might, you, you, you'd have to think that, that reskinning available databases is there's so much good stuff out there that you can't really access. And if you come up with a way of, 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 of reskinning it, and I mean, this is a little wobbly, but if you think about, think about the New York Times, really good at making content, not so good at organizing it. And so a lot of our initiatives like if you want a restaurant in New York and, and, and you punch it into your phone, who, who comes back at you is, is New York Magazine. That's just wrong. That's wrong. We, I, not that their coverage isn't excellent, but, but uh, they shouldn't have beat us on that. We've got the bigger, more robust database. We've got the years of history. We've invested. And so a lot of sort of investment is going to be in, in, in refreshing that content, reskinning it in a way that can be used. Same with uh, 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 recipes, I just think are, you know, um, I cook out of our newspaper a lot, and it's just, it's not that easy to find stuff. 
um, right here in Boston, you, 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 you got Cook's Illustrated and, and Chris Kimball, who not only has his database optimized, but he'll sell it to you 400 different ways. You know? Now I'm a cookbook. Now I'm on TV. Now I'm on the website. Now I'm in your kitchen. Now I'm tying your bow tie. He's, he's, um, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from that guy. Think about the sort of an existing asset. When I leave here, will I go out and flail around for a cab and hope I don't get one with bad shocks and a stinky interior? No, I'll go on Uber, and Uber is going to Uber is taking a database that's already out there, which is people out driving around, and they're they're making it visible to me, and they're making the transaction friction free and easy. There's a lot of lessons in media. ESPN took stats and reskinned them into a great big business. Weather.com, weather, the Weather Channel, that's all government data. Already was uh, uh, there. Um, a lot of the very <coughs> excellent and growing media sites, whether it's BuzzFeed, whether it's Gawker, Business Insider, Upworthy, they're taking this great vast sea of information and 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 editing it, selecting it, and and then surfacing it in ways um, where it, it's presented in a way that 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 consumers want visually with snappy headlines, and essentially what they've done is. is is put new skin on, on, on a constantly changing world of news. Um, uh, some people call that aggregation, others call it stealing, but uh, the point is is that that's sort of over, right? It's, it's, um, it, we, it, 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 it has happened. And, um, um, and if you look at what Gawker has done, what BuzzFeed has done, what Business Insider has done, what happens whenever they get a little extra money? What do they do with it? hire reporters. BuzzFeed just hired a reporter to cover international women's issues. Um, uh, it, 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 I, I think a couple of years from now, this whole thing about old media and new media, the way they're marching toward each other, just, there's going to be a de minimis difference. I mean, we have the legacy costs associated with being so-called old media. But we've got the robust web presence that they all want. We have the news brand that they all want. We've indexed into video very seriously. I mean, I'm spending an enormous amount of time right now on um, um, on uh, the Oscars. I used to write about the Oscars. I used to blog about them. And I made a lot of videos about them. And on Oscar night, uh, Tony Scott and I will be um, doing a warm-up for the Oscars, and then when the commercial comes, we're assuming that you already have the second screen in your lap, that it's going to heat up, and, and, and me and Tony will pop out of it and start talking to you, and you think, well, that's, that's just weird. We've been doing it for four years. We don't own the rights to the Oscars, right? It isn't ours, but we can grab their shirt and sort of hang on. and. You have to, uh, you don't have to. I think of, <coughs> excuse me, um, a lot of cultural objects that appear on the main screen of your television. The business of, I don't want to sound like it just took a big bong hit, but the, the, the business of, of, of sort of annotating those things. Uh, whether it be on Twitter, on Facebook, uh, or the, the, the screen on your wall and the screen in your lap, those are going to end up smushed together. And the, um, what, the Chiron, the, the crawl at the bottom of your screen, um, I don't, you can say to yourself, well, I don't really want to watch the, the, the Grammys. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not into the artists. What if on the same screen, underneath, in real time, all your friends are cracking wise while the Grammys are going on. 
Well, then it becomes a kind of new cultural object. And you can see why we as an institution, we might want to annotate the State of the Union we, in real time. We might want to annotate uh, the Grammys in real time. And, and when, when you take uh, something that is supposedly low culture, like the Golden Globes, although I thought this show was terrific this year, and you add in uh, a bunch of wiseacres from wherever, it becomes a different sort of experience. And I think these hybrid cultural experiences are part of a big part of what's uh, been going on. The other thing I'll just nod at is this sort of rise of individual brands. I mean, if you think of um, who we've been talking about is uh, Henry Blodgett, total reinvention. Um, I mean, I've done a bunch of stories about it. Henry Blodgett is Satan. Henry Blodgett is over. Henry Blodgett is rehabbing. Henry Blodgett is on the rise. Henry Blodgett is king. Um, the rise of individual brands. I mean, BuzzFeed is built on, you know, listicles and stuff like that. But if they didn't hire Ben Smith, um, they're very able, talented editor-in-chief. I mean, eight months after he got hired, we were partnered with them on the presidential election. And it's like, wow, that was fast. That was a really fast. I mean, before that, it, 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 um, we all we all laughed. I laughed at... Um, uh, um, uh, at Ariana Huffington when she um, uh, um, kind of a swinging ringtone when you really get it um, when she got started, but in, in five years she built out this amazing thing. Used to take fifty million bucks. She did it for probably ten or twenty. Used to take years and years and years. And you can build brands super super fast. And a lot of times it's. You build them around Kara Swisher. You build them in uh, Nate Silver, an asset of ours that, that got away. And I, I, uh, I heard in a story about it, our, uh, um, uh, our chief executive saying, not a big deal, very big deal for us. Nate was really important for us. Um, it's not like we won't come up with anything behind him, but in terms of his mix of humor, uh, statistical excellence and efficacy, um, uh, uh, a very valuable uh, person for us. And you start to see sort of names, they, they, they become assets that are over brands. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but it, it is, I had a little bit of a moment when I, you know, listened to the Olympic dun, 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 and there's David Remnick, and it's like, wow! <laughs> the editor of the New Yorkers, talking about luge. I mean, it's just <laughs> like weird. Uh, uh, when you think of uh, when uh, the former D Defense Secretary Gates wanted to do his rollout on his on his book, did, did he sit down and network? No, he was on Yahoo with Katie Couric. I mean, I just think that things are changing. Uh, uh, very, very rapidly, and we have to, um, uh, as practitioners, we have to change with it. So now I'm making video, now I'm doing a blog, now I'm doing a post on Medium, now I'm doing a column, now I'm doing, and um, uh, I'm old, so it's exhausting, uh, but I, I, I really would say I really have never had more fun than right now. I mean, it's, if you're a media reporter, it's just hold your hands out like it's raining. I mean, it's really what used to be a very boring and static beat. I, I said no when they offered me a column at the New York Times. I just said it's nothing ever changes in media. It's you're writing about people who write about people who write about people. It couldn't be any more off the ball than that. And my friends who had worked at Daily said, no, you should. How many columns do you think they're going to offer you? You should take that. Well, now I'm glad I did. Now it's, it's great. It's not hard to come up with stuff because 
There's just stuff happening all the time. I got a bunch of other stuff, but let's talk about what you want to talk about. Let me ask, <clears throat> when, first of all, let me congratulate Boston University. There's some people from BU here? Uh, they're strong for their posse yeah, over well, there. They, uh, they stole the mark. Actually, they got, they, they got barred at the door. I see. <laughs> well, they, uh, they did a good day's work when they signed up, uh, David. Um, when you think about an institution like the New York Times, which I would not argue with you has difficulty organizing its content, but the thing the New York Times does is generate content and generates content in spheres that are not ones that a lot of people who are looking for uh, ways to make money uh, want to go to. So is there a business model for the New York Times that is going to sustain that part of the New York Times' mission? Part of the reason I'm having fun is business is good. I mean, it is. We've a couple of years ago, we did that movie you were talking about is just like a horror show. It's just like we're all, you know, walking around going, you know, who's going to swing out of the trees and kill us now? We owed $250 million to a Mexican billionaire at usurious rates at the time. It's just like, it was scary. And we've straightened out our capital structure. We've focused our business. We don't own your baseball team anymore. We don't uh, 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 own your newspaper anymore. Um, and we're in the New York Times business, and it turns out not a bad business, not like a heat, not, not a huge business. I mean, people always talk about the size and the impact of the New York Times. And whether you measure it at uh, 40 million uniques, 50 million uniques, or, um, you know, uh, a million on paper or uh, during the week or two million on, on the weekend, still tiny slice of what could be out there. And Mark Thompson, our chief executive's assumption is that we can grow our our brand on the consumer side. In 2012, we was the first year we got more money from consumers than we got from ads. And we're very much in a consumer business now. And again and again, when I get stuck in those horrible meetings we all try and avoid, um, I just, that's what I always try and go to is serve the consumer first, serve the advertiser next. And in that instance, the second and third world is hatching customers for us all the time. And what they want is efficacious and true information about what's, uh, what's going on. And our huge global footprint in terms of bureaus, uh, which is part of what you're talking about, and sort of the, uh, other kinds of sort of Brussels sprout journalism where, where it's accountability journalism. Um, not been a bad business for us. And if you think about the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, The Economist, The New Yorker, the serious news business last couple of years, getting better, getting better. I'm not, I don't have the existential worry that I do. And part of it is sort of last man standing. Everybody else got out of our way. Um, but, um, but I think that there's, I, I don't, I don't go into work wondering, oh, is my ID card going to work? Is it, you know, am I going to get tased when I go upstairs? That whole era of, um, you know, every other day there'd be, you know, sheet cakes and, and really bad sparkling champagne for another person who's taken off. I'm not saying that's over, over, but it's not chronic like it was. Do you have a sense of what Jeff Bezos is going to do yet? Like I say, it was a complete surprise to me that uh, he bought it. And I mean, it, no, no, I don't. I would mention his relevant expertise, which is developing <laughs> strong relationships with customers and knowing what they want almost before they want it. That's one competence he has. That seems like a good one for the newspaper business. And then he has this expertise in last mile delivery as well, where... Um, 
they've been able to use third parties over and over to get their goods into your hands in a timely way. Both of those seem like very relevant skills. He also, what Amazon is good at is, is it's easy on the way in, and then they do a good job of sort of keeping you in there and, 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 and sort of, uh, if you like this, you'll like that. That seems like a very relevant skill to uh, uh, newspapering. I do think that um, I have enormous regard for, for, for Don Graham. And when, when, I, when I spoke to him about it, he said, you'll see, he's the right owner for this paper. I think his most relevant sort of uh, 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 like characteristic is playing for the long shore. He has been at Amazon, invest, 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 and, 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 and days of profit never seem to arrive there, and yet their stock keeps going up, and he continues to build the asset. And that willingness to build out uh, uh, for the long short to, to, to gain scale and not worry about squeezing for every nickel along the way I think that'll be good for the Washington Post. Plus, just the pure in-migration, whether it's him or Pierre or, 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 or any of these people, just looking at old questions in new ways and putting the sticks up in the air. I, I can tell you in my own career, uh, I, I, I used to work and train young journalists, and I'd give them my big lecture, and I'd say, all journalism is about conflict. And they'd say, well, why is that? Really? How come? I think there's going to be some of that going on. It's like, well, we don't do that. Why, why is that? We're, we're, we'll begin to uh, question some of the fundamentals. I do think that there is, amongst these uh, legacy uh, brands, uh, a couple of advantages. A lot of them make money, which the new ones don't. So there's that. Always that. People always say, well, why do you put that those big chunks of white paper out, right? Um, think about it 20 years from now. We used to call it, it where you're going to explain a newspaper to someone, to a kid, and say, well, we used to call a full stop to the news cycle, and we used to decide what the seven most important stories were in the Western canon. And then we used to smush them onto paper and then manufacture a whole bunch of them, put them in trucks, and then go and throw them in people's yards. <laughs> really? You're not kidding me. Yeah, <laughs> you just throw them in people's yards. And, and uh, people always say, well, well, given how anachronistic that sounds when, it, when I say that, why, why do you put all that white paper out? People give us green paper back. <laughs> Let me open the floor, especially to uh, students first. If you're a student at uh, Harvard and would like to ask a question, indicate, please. Yes. I was going to raise the question of the fact that the Facebook and Twitter and social media platforms seem to be converging in regard to video, in regard to the presentation of the feeds. And I was just wondering how do you how do you see. Um, see how social media platforms differ, <coughs> differentiating themselves from each other, or do you think they will look essentially the same even in the near term, like next few years? Well, Facebook clearly, like I'm not a big Facebook user, um, but they clearly want to be your operating system on the world, right? They want to be your prism around media, they want to be your prism around messaging. They want everything. They're very Google-like in that way. They want it all. Um, uh, Twitter has done a great job of turning toward the, the money issue fairly early. If you look at the life of Instagram, of Twitter, of Tumblr, of all these platforms, they're like, fine, 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 and then they have trouble. And it's always when they try and figure out, well, how are we going to make money? on all this stuff. And it's the pivot toward you've given something to people for free without ads, and then you've got to pivot into something where it, it, it makes money. And that, 
again and again, that's always sort of a friction point. I think it's been interesting to watch uh, Twitter, which I both use and follow kind of closely because they've got now they've got a use problem. They're not growing as fast as they were because when you think of Twitter, Twitter has such a strong coastal bias and really has not had a great deal of luck. It, it's, it, it's oddly diverse in terms of, of race and gender. Um, probably 30 to 40 percent of the people on Twitter are non-white, and so they've got that. That's a business advantage for them, I think. Um, but there's this strong uh, 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 coastal bias, and so you know, I can go to my boss and say, "Oh, my column was just huge on Twitter." That's like a rock band saying they're big in Japan. It's not. <laughs> it's not dispositive. It's interesting. It's cool. Um, and uh, Dick Costello, the, 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 the chief executive of Twitter, I think is, is doing a good job of articulating the challenges they have, which is, with Twitter, it's easy to like walk in there and say, what am I doing here? What, what, do, do, do I really need more noise in my life? Um, the, the, uh, I've had a very, like, tortured relationship with Twitter because it's sort of like having it's like having a really friendly dog that's waiting for you by the door and you love the dog and you want to feed the dog and you want to take care of the dog but after a while it's like enough with the dog <laughs> I don't I don't want you always looking at me and say hey, what else you got to tweet about you know and um, uh, I think there's a tendency a lot right now, and, and, and if, if you look over the hill, is people not wanting more, but people not wanting less. When Ar Ariana Huffington makes all those foofy remarks about violence in your life and all that stuff, she's on to something. I do think that people, if you look at, like, uh, there was a service just launched called Inside that's a news service, it's, it's trying to take the fire hose and, and, and whittle it down. I do think that social media really has to work on that. When I open up Facebook right now, it is such a torrent that it reminds me of MySpace. It's just like, it's just not very good looking. It's super busy. And uh, I think that in that sense, Twitter is better positioned because you have a simple UI that, although, although Facebook has done a great job on the phone, Again and again, news is going to be a list on your phone. It just is. It just is. And whether it's your social media feed or it's your, uh, uh, it's your New York Times app or it's whatever RSS you, that list is going to be really important. So what, what are we working on in terms of what's at the top? Is it relevance to me? Is it recency? Did it just happen? Uh, is it uh, relevance to the context that I'm in? Your, your context could be your query, right? The fact that I'm at Harvard, maybe, maybe I want Harvard news at the top. I don't think so, but, uh, uh, and so, the, we, I, I do think that social media will, they're gonna play a role in sort of deciding. And Facebook took a real bold step in terms of <laughs> cutting down on easily shared memes and so car uh, uh, clickbait and what people view as a garbage and and it the thing about that is their whole business models built on Facebook Upworthy which was the fastest growing site on the internet uh, they, they saw their traffic all, all all Facebook did was turn a couple knobs and their their traffic went down 60 percent it's it's very mindful of when uh, Google um, change their, uh, their, their search stuff and all of a sudden demand media went flying off the world and stuff. A lot of these companies that, that, that use other platforms to build out business that they don't control are at some risk and, and peril. And um, uh, Facebook is, is, is driving it. They've surprised me. Their ability to m draw money out of mobile because if you think of your phone, right, 
it's it, it, it's great. It's always there. But you, you know, one of the things there's no room for on that is a business model. And Facebook has done a really good job of moving aggressively into mobile and and giving you in-stream ads that I think are doing uh, really really well. I, I was surprised by their results, as was uh, Wall Street. You know, in terms of their pivot. Other students, yes, sir. Um, <clears throat> sort of building off of what you're talking about in terms of distribution models being whether they're list-based or viral-based, like your Philip Seymour Hoffman story, I'm curious how that changes from the content creator's perspective, how articles are written for that sort of distribution, especially when it becomes social media-based. And then also on the consumption side, as our friends and social networks kind of become the sources for our news more and more, how that affects the type of news we read and then the, ultimately the opinions we form and how we sort of branch out of those echo chambers that might form. Well, if you're trying to optimize for social media, um, um, gets back to what I was saying about reskinning. If, if you think about how Upworthy got started, um, I think Eli Pariser was working for moveon.org and he and a buddy came up with there was uh, um, congressional testimony of a, a decorated army dude testifying before Congress about um, the fact that uh, both his parents were women. And it was very earnest and, and inspiring testimony, at least to me personally, given my values. And, uh, um, and but no one really saw it. And then. Eli, and I'm sorry I can't come up with the other name, uh, they, 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 they reskinned it with the headline, this is what happens when two lesbians have a baby. All of a sudden it's got, I don't know how many million views on, on YouTube. And so the content didn't really change, you know what I mean? Um, uh, and in the instance of, uh, well, let's take a small instance of viralness, which is uh, the Philip Seymour Hoffman thing I did. 100,000 or 90, not, not huge, but sort of off a base of zero. Um, the, the, the headline was the opposite of optimized. The headline was the wrestler. So it's sort of off to the side. He wasn't even in that movie. Um, uh, and then the B matter was uh, uh, like exploring the, f uh, looking at the fights that Philip Seymour Hoffman won. So not, not optimized per se. And like I say, it had a very meandering, weird top to it and stuff. So what I would say, and I've had this experience on Twitter, is, 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 is where you go, oh, this tweet, this tweet is just going to kill. It's just going to melt the internet. I can just, you know, and you drop it and you go, and it enters water like an Olympic dive. Nobody, like not a ripple, <laughs> nothing. And then I, I can remember the last Winter Olympics, I was, uh, the, the Olympics ended and all I tweeted like two days afterwards, I'm a Winter Olympics nerd, I know, horrible. Uh, and uh, all I tweeted was, I missed the Olympics. And that, that thing just like <laughs> sailed. And it's, 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 it, it, it's just a moment. If, 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 and, and you never uh, can tell. What was the second question? I didn't really answer the first. The second question was, as our distribution networks become our friends and our social networks, how we start to encounter content that might be outside of what everyone around us already believes or thinks. I think it's a huge problem, because I do. Um, <laughs> Eli, who I was talking about before, I mean, he wrote the filter bubble. If you and I, if you and I search Afghanistan or hooking up or heroin, we're going to get a different result. Um, and that's because Google knows who I am, Facebook. And even without a self-assembling into verticals of interest or so-called filtered bubbles, um, uh, it happens sort of organically around it. And I do think that if we all end up in, in, in a little coven with our, uh, 
with, with our buddies that what disappears is the village common in between us. I can remember I was at a dinner party in, 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 in Brooklyn and, you know, fill in whatever cartoon you want about a Brooklyn dinner party. Uh, and they were talking, uh, it was when uh, Bush and Gore were running and um, they're having a talk. Who are these people that vote for Bush? I can't believe, I don't know any of them. And I'm like, and um, I'm, uh, I'm looking over at my wife because I, I, I sleep with someone who hates poor people and um, it's a joke. <laughs> uh, um, but I know if you remember the first version of Bush the second, the first version of him was the compassionate conservative and, and reaching out and, and even though she didn't end up happy with him, she had voted for him, uh, him and, and in hopes that some of that, she was that kind of. Uh, and so I pointed, uh, I pointed out, I said, well, here's this unicorn in the wild. <laughs> Somebody that voted for the guy. And the minute she started talking, they all shouted her down. And that's so much of what the internet reminds me of. If I write about John Stewart, or I write about Bill O'Reilly, just the invective and silliness that I get where, and they're again arguing facts over and over, it must be true, I saw it on the internet, and it's like, yeah, well, the United States did not take down the World Trade Center, okay, they didn't. You, you may have found that on the internet, but you, whatever confirmation bias led that, we can't really have a common discussion. And I worry that we're going to hive off into these, like, like we're, 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 the only thing we have in common is Molly Cyrus twerking or Philip Seymour Hoffman dying or these big, big uh, moments, but that, that, that the important stuff, the, the, the mortar between the bricks won't be there, right? Uh, so yeah, it's a it's a concern to me. The number one conspiracy theorist in the country is Alex Jones, radio commentator. Yeah, and I share his name, of course. Yeah, you do. And I get his email. Sometimes. I always assumed it was you. Yeah, it was. <laughs> but, but I don't like. You just go in a closet and start ranting. Well, quite. This frankly, is what I think about what I think. The, the email I get that is aimed at him and I get by accident always begins the same way. It begins with the words. Finally, someone will tell us the truth. <laughs> yes? When I worked at Legacy Media, one of the walls we didn't cross was, at that time, called advertorial. And now, I guess I'm curious about your feelings about native advertising in the New York Times. If it, I don't know if it's different than what was advertorial. And how does the rise of native advertising maybe affect the journalism done by the journalism side of the institution? A great question. Um, I mean, we've always done native in the sense that we, you know, we've got China today or Russia today, and it's these—I don't know—it's these ad inserts that are just full of propaganda and a lot of, a <laughs> lot of it nonsense. You know, China, a, a vast culture opening to the world. It's meanwhile they won't let our journalists in. You know, they won't give them visas. Um, I think that this whole, like, if we think about brands wanting to go direct with the consumer and what they want is a relationship with you, but they don't want me standing in between it, defining that relationship, an ad agency, a media outlet, a reporter, and again and again they want to go direct. I think that in the, uh, as audiences, Younger audiences are more willing and open to that kind of thing, and they examine information for the value it provides. I can remember coming home 10 years ago with Lucky Magazine to my then very young teenagers, and it's a shopping magazine that Condé Nast puts out, and I was doing my old grampy pants journalism thing about, you can't even tell what that is, what a copy, you know, and they're like, why would you care if it was useful? <laughs> useful? What would you? I, I don't know how my kids know what they know, but they're definitely not 
they're smarter than I was. And I, and I just, I can't, I can't really even get to the end of what they know. And, um, and somehow, whether it's, you know, the zipper on the billboard, the, the, the post in the friend's Facebook feed, uh, um, um, my colleague, uh, uh, Brian Stelter, uh, wrote a story, my ex-colleague, Brian Stelter, wrote a story about five, six years ago where a kid said, if, if it's important, it'll find me. And I just thought that was such a moment. Like, everybody at our work just went, it's weird that you think it, even weirder that it's probably true. And um, so, again and again, I think with Native, what will be a good test is, like, you're watching Forbes get sold. And Forbes has jumped into that harder than anybody. And I think they've really dented their brand in doing so. They've got all these contributors. They've got paid content. And what it even means to be a Forbes story anymore, I can't really even tell. Um, but, you know, they're asking $400 million. And maybe it'll probably be a foreign non-strategic buyer that'll buy it. There's a big trend of people buying media for non-economic reasons. And that maybe they just want the hood ornament, but in terms of what happens with uh, native advertising, it really depends on the site that you're on, and it's like, if you have to ask the question, where am I and who wrote this, then they probably are crossing the line that not only is not good for the consumer, but probably not good for their business either. Yes? Today is uh, the anniversary of Soko Pippa, and uh, the day we fight back on the internet in terms of net neutrality Bruce Sterling talks about the five stacks, the way that Amazon, Google, Facebook, all these big organizations, Apple, are now making walled gardens. And at the same time, you have Jeff Bezos and Amazon buying the Washington Post and Amazon Cloud doing work for the NSA. So on one level, you have all this distribution of information and people being able to release their voices. And on the other hand, you have this agglomeration and conglomeration of forces. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about that tension between what's getting bigger at the same time that our voices are getting a little bit louder. I think it's really a fundamental question of our time, right? I mean, I, I did a, I, I think it was probably a year ago, I did with a thing with Eric Schmidt where I, I was on stage with him and I said, you know, for the price of free, you've given me everything and all I've given you in return is my soul. So <laughs> that's, I said, at least, at least I keep my contacts separate from you guys. And he said, oh, really? <laughs> When's the last time you used your contacts? And I thought about it, and I thought, everything I need to know is in my Gmail, and I don't even use my contacts anymore. And our willingness, if you look at Sopa Pippa, right, uh, which was the big effort by Hollywood to uh, 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 rein in uh, uh, piracy, who beat it down? It was, yeah, it was we the people, except it was with Google, Facebook, everybody pushing, pushing, pushing. I think that if you read um, The Circle, which is Dave Egger's dystopian novel about what happens when, like, it drove everybody in Silicon Valley crazy, but the, the one more... One more click when the loop is closed, and 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 we we find out that um, who you probably know whoever said if if you're getting something for free, then you are probably the product. And we we have um, uh, we've given our identities over uh, to these guys. I mean, even my corporate mail is now on Gmail. And so it's just like, 
and Eric's is like, <laughs> Eric was like, if you like us and trust us and think we're good guys, then that should probably be fine. And what Dave Ayer's book was about is, but what if we're not? And I thought it was a cool book. I, I loved watching the movie Her, which is uh, about a guy falling in love with an operating system, which is, you think to yourself, it just isn't really that far off. It's just like one click to the right with what we got going. And you wonder if all the music stopped. Like, are those guys really on our side? Are we, is it really us? Or what kind of backdoors did they really grant for the NSA to come in behind? And right now they're arguing for transparency. But when no one was looking, that stuff was going on. So they didn't really speak up then. It's just now that they're getting out the 10-foot pole and trying to get away from government. So I, I think, I think the, always the line between big this and big that is really small. Big data, big government, big technology, I think is always going to be thin and porous. And yeah, I, 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 I don't snap awake in the middle of the night thinking about it, but I, I think about it a lot. David, it's going to be great having you in Boston. Yep. Glad you're coming. Thank you for being here. You bet.